Amen. Thank you, Ken. Uh, good morning, church. It's, is it? It's not very convincing. It's morning. Is it a good morning? Ah, oh, okay. It's okay if it's not. I just wasn't sure. Couldn't tell. Didn't sound very committed. All right. See, we're glad you're here. Regardless of what kind of morning you're having, I'm glad you're here. If you join us online, glad to have you as well. We actually have a member joining from Kenya this morning. Uh, super glad that we can connect in these kind of ways and never want, never want our, our online platform to be an excuse or a reason not to show up because it's just so much sweeter when you're here. Um, but thankful that when you are gone and we do have a way to connect online, you may not even be aware of that if you're sick or traveling, whatever, and you want to connect. Um, we run our services live on Sunday morning, and so there's a way to stay connected while you're out. So if you're joining us online, welcome. Glad you're part of this. All right, so we're in First Peter uh, chapter 2 this morning. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we've been going through First Peter now for several weeks. We're going to go through First Peter and then Second Peter, and that'll take us all the way through the spring till May to get through it all. And we've made it to chapter 2, so just a little context. Um, Peter, if you hear that name, you're like, wait, is that the guy who like denies Jesus three times? Yes, that's the one. Um, he actually got to write a couple of, of, of letters that show up in the Bible now. So, um, yes, he was the Peter who denied Christ. Uh, he's the disciple who oftentimes is the hero in one minute, minute and then like 35 seconds later, uh, he's the villain. He's the one putting his foot in his mouth. He's the one jumping out of the boat to walk on water, and he's also the one about to drown. So that's Peter. So he's writing um, about, I don't know, 30 years after the resurrection. So church has been rolling for about 30 years. And um, he's writing to a group of people who are Christians who have um, been deported out of Rome, who've been displaced from their homes uh, because of their faith in Jesus. They would not recant their faith in Jesus. So the emperor uh, Nero has deported them out of Rome into the smaller communities around Asia Minor. Now, this is before uh, Nero will eventually unleash uh, fierce, violent harm against those who are Christians, but at this point, he's just trying to hush them by getting them out of town. And so Peter is writing to Christians who have been displaced and deported and have, are experiencing persecution, uh, primarily in the form of social persecution. They're, they're being set apart and separated and, and treated as less than. And so Peter is writing um, a letter to encourage these Christians to be full of hope. And he actually refers to it as a living hope. So it's not like it's an ancient hope or a future hope, but it's like a, a current hope that's alive. Now it's rooted in ancient promises and, and it's connected to future promises, but it's a, a hope that can be alive today in the midst of suffering or persecution. And so this is, this is a sermon series we're calling First Peter Full of Hope. We're going to talk today, so, so far what Peter has done in his letter is, so he's writing to Christians who are struggling and suffering and being persecuted. He hasn't really mentioned a whole lot of practical advice on how to hold on to the faith or how to live practically day by day while you're suffering, while you're being persecuted. Uh, he's mainly said, hey, before we get to what's going on in your life, let's talk about what's already true that has not changed, that just because you went from a situation where you were thriving to now a situation where you're suffering, let's, let's take inventory on the things that are true regardless of what you're going through. And so the first chapter opens with this beautiful reminder that if you're in Christ, you've been born again, like more than just like hitting the reset button. Uh, you, you, it's like the spiritual transformation in your life is so extraordinary and so dramatic. It's like being born again and you've been born again into something into this living hope and into this inheritance that you have 
And so now in chapter 2, these first 12 verses, Peter is going to talk about your new identity in this living hope, like who you actually are. And so as we think about like our identity, you as a human being both have a perceived identity and a real identity. Okay, so your perceived identity is who you think you are. So if I were to ask you, and if you're in a community group, you can go ahead and be thinking about your answer to this question. The opening question this week is going to be, in one to three words, tell us who you are. What words would you use to describe yourself? How do you perceive yourself? Who are you? When you look in the mirror, what do you see? It's your perceived identity. And what Peter's going to do is he's going to talk about now what your true identity is. But let's think for a minute, where does that come from? Why is it so hard to look in the mirror and see what God sees or even see what other people see for that matter? We think about where do we get our perceived identity from? I mean, it starts at a really young age, actually. You come into the world asking some really bold questions of the world. Am I wanted and am I loved? You don't even know those words, but you're looking for that. You're hoping that whatever home you're born into will answer those questions with yes. And so you're craving, you're crying for it. You're longing for a sense of safety and comfort. No, okay, if, if I'm hungry and somebody feeds me, then I must, I must be wanted here. Right, like even your little brain that can't compute all that feels that, that security, that safety. Okay, so if I get hungry, I just do that thing where I make the noise and then somebody good's gonna show up that I will one day call mom or dad and they're gonna feed me. I'm wanted here. And then as you grow and begin to understand what it means to have affection for others and you, I want some of that affection too. And mommy, daddy, do you love me? And you may ask it in a million different ways. You may act out for attention. You may get loud. You may actually break rules to see if you can get their attention. You may just say, hey, mom, I love you. And that's really actually a question. I want to hear it back. I want to hear that you love me. Not only am I, do I belong here, but I'm cared for here. And, and, and based on how the world answers those questions, we begin to have a perceived identity. Starting with parents. Like, your parents impact the way you see yourself at a very early age. Then you get into school and you get into classroom setting and neighborhood settings and friendship circles and how you perceive that people perceive you begins to impact and shape how you see yourself, right? If somebody tells you you're good at soccer, you're like, okay, that's part of who I am, good at soccer. And then you score a goal and the crowd goes crazy. You're like, that feels like love? Like, that feels like acceptance? And so, oh, so I just score the goal and I get that. So now I'm going to play harder. I'm going to perform more. I'm going to... Then you score a goal or you don't score the goal and you get the opposite. You get silence. And all those experiences begin to compute and you begin to interpret those things and and, and begin to ask yourself, who am I in this world? Am I smart? Am I dumb? Am I accepted? Am I rejected? Am I liked? Am I not? Am 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 I ugly? Am I pretty? And so over time, what will happen is you'll begin to kind of write your story. This must be who I am. Especially if you've got siblings. Well, I'm not the smart one, and I'm not the athlete, so I'm the one stuck in the middle that kind of was an inconvenience. Or you begin to hear from your parents. You know, we weren't really expecting you. You were a, you were a surprise. And you're like, oh, so I really wasn't wanted. You just keep writing your story. So what, what, what's going to happen today is... Peter is going to write down for us to read who you are from God's perspective. And you're going to hear some things today 
that are going to be hard to believe about yourself. It's easy to believe, eh, I'm not wanted, I'm dumb. Like, it's easy to go that way. But to actually believe what is true about you if you're in Christ is going to challenge some things in you. Matter of fact, if it doesn't challenge you, I'm worried. Apart from faith. But it's going to take faith for you to believe what God says about you today. We're going to start with um, verse 1. And so in this passage, at the beginning and the end, it's going to be bookended with Peter calling us to let go of some old stuff. Okay? It's going to tell us to put some things away. We're going to start there, then we're going to end there. And so we'll just start with verse 1. He said, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So if you're a person who believes the Bible is just a book of rules, and it's this arbitrary list of commandments and rules that I'm never going to live up to, so quite honestly, I don't even want to read it. If, if you're that person, you just heard that, and you go, see, look, more rules. Another list of things i got to put away. I want to point out a couple things about this list of rules to help you understand the heart of God. First of all, this put away is really similar to what Paul says. He will, he will say, hey, you, you've been born again, so you need to put away the old stuff that, that looks more like who you used to be. You need to put away those things. And here, you need to put some new things on. You've been born again. So he'll say take off, almost like undress from the old things. And here, put on some new clothes that are closer to who you actually are in Christ. And so Peter is saying a similar thing when he says, hey, put these things away. So I want you to see, though, what it is he's actually telling you. You decide if you think that God's in heaven just trying to be mean to you, trying to take good things away from you, or if he is a loving father who gives you rules that lead you to what's good. Okay, you, you decide that. To understand fully what he's talking about here, I think it's important if we back up into the, what he just said in chapter 1. The last commandment, the last rule, okay, here it is that Peter gives us in chapter 1, is to love one another with a sincere brotherly affection. Now, does that sound like the kind of rule that comes from a mean dad? So here's my, what's the rule, dad? I want you guys to love one another with a sincere brotherly love. Okay? Okay, well, all right. Well, what's interesting is that the things he tells us to put away are things that corrupt sincere brotherly love things that interrupt and corrupt my relationship with you and your relationship with me these this isn't just an arbitrary list of rules that peter pulls out of thin air and says here go do these things look at what he says like he says the first thing is malice so in the greek language this word is is actually the opposite of virtue Okay, and so really this is kind of the opening thing, and then everything after this is going to be a description of what is malice. Okay, so put away everything that's not virtuous, and here's what he says. Here's the list. All deceit, hypocrisy, and envy, and slander. That's a specific list of things to put away. Think, let's think about it. What's the first thing on the list? Deceit. We all know what that means, right? You don't need me to unpack the Greek. That's to lie, to deceive, right? So if, if you and I are trying to have a relationship and one of us is deceiving the other, we actually don't have a relationship. I might have a relationship with 
the lie you're telling, the false version of who you are, but if one of us is deceiving the other, we can't have a relationship. So the thing he's telling me to put away is something that would actually corrupt or interrupt our relationship with one another. So he says, hey, put away deceit. The next thing is hypocrisy. Say one thing, do something else, or pretend to be something you're not. Once again, I can't have a relationship with you, a real relationship, a sincere relationship with you if all I'm getting is the facade, what you think I want to see in you, the hypocritical version of yourself. So, right, so I, I, think, I think back to like dating before marriage and like dating's where you get the, the most edited version of the person you're about to marry. <laughs> Maybe you didn't run that play. That's the play I was running. It's like, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta present the best version of myself or I'm never gonna convince her to get up on the altar and say I do. So, so Hallie got the, the, the most redacted, edited version of myself I could present. And then we got married. And then I was scared. I was like, now she's going to find out who I really am. Hope she doesn't change her mind. Unfortunately, 18 years later, sh- I think she's still happy with her choice. She seems like it. You can, have, you can ask her. But the point is this. There was a little bit of hypocrisy in our dating. Right? Because I wasn't presenting the full truth of who I was. I was presenting myself. And so what he's saying is like, hey, like in your new identity in Christ, you've been born again. You could, if you're going to have real sincere brotherly like connection with one another, you're going to put away deceit and you're going to put away hypocrisy. You're going to have to bring the real you to the relationship. The next thing he mentions is what? Envy. Um, that's more than just admiring something that you have and going, oh, that's super cool. You got that new car. You got that new job. Like, like this is the idea of like a jealousy that leads to strife to where don't turn your back or I might take it from you. Yeah, we can't have a relationship if I'm always having to make sure you're not taking my things. And then the next thing he mentions here is slander. Right? So this is the idea of speaking in a way that is like evil towards one another. And obviously, we're not going to have a very good relationship. Whether I'm doing it behind your back or not, we are not going to share brotherly affection from a sincere and pure heart. So the things, I want you to see this. Like if you're that person who's like, man, the Bible is just a list of rules and God just seems to be this mean God who just keeps taking all the fun stuff away. Like I want you to see this in every command. Your loving heavenly father is calling you to something better. He wants you to have sincere brotherly love. If you're a member of his household, he wants his children to have sincere brotherly love towards one another. And he's saying, hey, put off the things that corrupt that that will keep you from having that. And so we're to put away these things. And now what he's going to do is describe our faith, kind of building off of the idea that when I come to faith in Christ, the transformation that happens in me is so dramatic that it's, again, it's like being born again. Now he's going to pick up on that and say, yeah, and whenever you first become a Christian, you're a lot like a newborn infant. And the same way we were talking about earlier how you came into the world the first time, you need to know you belong, you need to be cared for and nurtured. Now in the faith, you could be, we just had a gentleman uh, in the last service, I don't know, he's probably in his 60s, who got saved on January the 15th, 2023. And he said in his testimony, I was born again. So regardless of his physical age, spiritually speaking, he's an infant. And what he's going to describe here now is how we grow and mature now. We don't stay infants in the faith. 
He says in verse 2, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And what Peter's doing here, and if we back this into to chapter 1, is this. He's saying, hey, here's the seed of your salvation. It's the word of God. That was, that was the rest of chapter 1 where he ended. He's like, hey, this is, you know, the grass is going to wither and fall away, but there's something that you have access to that won't wither. It won't change with the season. It doesn't get corrupted. It's the word of God. That's the seed of your salvation. And now he's saying, hey, in this same word will be like milk to nurture you. Now, once again, if we take the perspective that God's this arbitrary God in heaven who makes up rules as he goes along and just tries to make things harder and harder on us, then you're going to hear, read the Bible, and so you're going to go, okay, well, just add this to my chores every day. Like, I got a list of chores, empty the dishwasher, feed the cat, read the Bible, say a prayer, right? And you're missing it. Like, he's talking about the thing that infants crave and that they need and they, they long for. And so there's some sense of like, no, I open the Bible because in it I find out who God is and, and I find out who I am and I find out how he feels about me. And like, that's different from reading the Bible as a list of, on a list of chores. Say, no, this is actually nurturing for your soul. James says it this way in James chapter 1, verse 21. He says, therefore, this will sound familiar, put away, does it sound familiar? Say, hey man, put away some things, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted, this idea of taking a seed and putting it in the ground, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So this idea of growing in spiritual maturity. So, I'm going to refer to our slide here again. I love this graphic. I talked about it on the first week. I didn't come up with it. This was our communications team. Um, but I just love this, how simple it is, yet how, how telling it is. So you've got this image that's mostly tilled up soil, right? You can see that. And this tilled up soil is a representation, really, of our hearts and our lives. If you've ever tilled up soil, you know it doesn't till up easy, does it? Like tilling up soil, plowing the ground is a violent thing. The tearing open of the soil. In uh, Matthew 13, Jesus is going to talk about your hearts that way and say, listen, your heart is a lot like soil. And the gospel comes to you like a seed. And some of your hearts are like hard, like rock. Some of, some of your hearts have got other seeds implanted, thorns and thistles. But there's, some of you have got like this really fertile soil. And so the gospel comes like a seed implanted in your heart. And what happens is that over time, it it comes to life. Like a tender, little, bright, vibrant, healthy shoot that will one day grow up to become a giant oak. It's a giant tree. Now, I think it's so important to remind ourselves that, you know, it's, uh, it's a lot like watching... Growing spiritually, I, I compare it to trees, but today I want to change that um, to watching your kids grow. Like there's sometimes when you, they walk in, you're like, oh my gosh, when did you grow? And then there's other times it's like you kind of still look the same, like the same height and the same kid that I but Like my boys walked in this morning, and for whatever reason, my 15-year-old, he looked like he grew two inches from yesterday. I'm like, whoa, I can see that. But 
I can tell you, he has been longing to grow for a long time. Like, he gets on the scales every day, he's been measuring his height, and he, right? And so, like, spiritually speaking, sometimes the growth that we inspire, it's, it's, like, it's like shooting up. It's like, boom. It's dramatic. It's like, oh, I just, yeah, God just did something big in my life, and I know it. And other times, am I ever going to grow? Am I actually getting taller? Oh, maybe, maybe if I stand up, you know. And so he's saying, like, hey, your spiritual growth, once you've been born again, you're going to grow like an infant. And some days it's going to be like, boom, you're going to shoot up. And other days it's going to be like a slow grind, growth. He's saying, like, listen, you've been born again. Put off these things and find your nourishment here. If you're going to open this daily, don't do it on, on your list of chores, but, but open it out of your relationship with God. God, I want to hear from you. It was so cool if I could just hear from the God of the universe. Oh, wait, I've got this Bible. I can open it, and I can hear from him. I can do relationship with him. We'll leave that there. The next part of this, verse 4, says this. As you come to him, the him here is Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious so this actually is going to start with Jesus then it's going to get to us and so here Peter's going to begin kind of pulling off of some Old Testament prophecies to help us see Jesus more clearly remember we talked about my perceived identity versus my real identity if we start with Jesus he says here's if you want to know what it was like to be Jesus he was like a living stone that was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, his heavenly Father, he was precious and chosen. Okay, and we'll get into some Old Testament prophecy in a minute, but here's the short of it. When Peter, and sometimes Paul, they use this metaphor of building things out of stone, it's a really helpful metaphor, um, because here, if you know how the building process works, uh, when the masons show up on the job, They've got all their supplies, they've got their mixer and their sand and their mortar, but then whatever masonry they're going to use, whether it's pallets of brick or it's stone, they've got this big pile they have to start from. And really what they have to do is pick the first stone, like which one are we going to start with? And so they pick a stone, and this particular time it would have been a cornerstone. You set the cornerstone first and build out from there. But here's the point, the, build, the, the stone masons are doing something constantly. They're constantly choosing and rejecting. They're looking for a rock or a stone that's the right size, and as they're fumbling through, they're like, no, that one will never work. They're tossing it into the discard pile, trying to find ones they can select to be part of whatever they're building. And so what Peter's reminding us of is that Jesus came, and he was actually rejected by the Masons. That is, the, the human beings that he came in contact with in his life encountered him. For the most part, they actually discarded and rejected him, which means they threw him into the trash pile. And so he was rejected by men, but he was accepted by his father. Matter of fact, he was described as chosen and precious. So think about that. If Jesus had rooted his identity in the way he experienced the world, like, golly, what trouble he would have had. I must be worthless. No sense in going and doing that whole cross thing, because, like, nobody's paying attention. Nobody's applauding me. Matter of fact, they're rejecting me. They're scorning me. They're trying to kill me. And, like, but no, his identity was not rooted in the way that people treated him. His identity was rooted in what? What his father thought of him. So even though he was rejected, right, that's not who he was. He was actually chosen and precious. Look at this. You yourselves 
like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Think about how you view your life. So many of us feel like we are the stone that the builders rejected. Because of the way we've been treated in the world, the way we've experienced the world, the heartache, the hardship, the rejection. It's like, man, I just kind of feel like I'm over in the, the trash pile. And what Peter's saying is like, no, 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 no. You're a living stone too. And not only have you been chosen, but like God has come as a master mason and selected you. He's chosen you. You're precious. And he's begun to shape and hone you and place you into this beautiful rock wall. And that's the metaphor for the kingdom. Like that's who you are. You yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. We'll come back to that. And offered to offer spiritual sacrifices, here's the key word, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. While you have, may have been rejected in this world on some fronts, you are accepted by God. Similar dilemma to Jesus. Are you going to see your identity through the lens of your rejection and your hardship, or are you going to see it through the lens of, I've been accepted by God? This is where it's going to start to get hard to believe. So much easier to go, nah, I'm in, the, I'm in the discard pile. I'm not one of the special ones that God chose. I'm not up on stage. I'm not teaching the Bible. I'm not doing a, a kid's class. I'm not playing the guitar. Those are the special ones. I'm in the discard pile. And Peter's saying, oh, no, 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 no. If you're in Christ, you're one of the chosen ones. And so we go on from here to verse 6. And now Peter's going to quote scripture. He says, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. I hear this, this description of God's word, um, this, this Jesus actually, he's either a cornerstone in your life, the starting point from which everything else is built, or he's gonna be a stumbling block to your life. But it's the same Jesus. Did you hear that too? It was yesterday, um, there's a little construction project going on at our house and um, I was carrying a sheet of plywood with my oldest son and I was walking backwards, big heavy sheet of plywood, and I didn't um, have the wisdom, fortitude, or eyes in the back of my head to check the ground as I'm walking backwards. And there was a, a block of wood, big chunk of um, wood here on the ground I didn't see and I caught my heel on it and I stumbled to the ground, kaboom. I told the guys this morning, I was like, I feel like I've been in a car wreck. Do you remember when you were a kid and the old people would talk about falling down like it was an event? You remember that? And you're like, I just fell down six times in my soccer game and I scored a goal and all I need is a popsicle. And you're like, what's the big deal? Like, now I'm at that age where like falling down's an event. It's like wrecking the car. At least that's how it feels. And I stumbled over this block of wood. And what Peter's saying is like, th this Jesus, he is a cornerstone for those who accept him, those who believe in him, 
But for those who don't, he will be a stumbling block. Cornerstone, stumbling block, same Jesus. That's what he's saying here. Now he quotes some really beautiful scriptures here from the Old Testament. Psalm 118, 22 says this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's about Jesus. Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, and these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Peter's quoting that passage here. He's quoting Isaiah 8, 14, and says this about the coming Messiah. He will become a sanctuary. That's a safe place. And a, and a stone of offense. So this Messiah who's going to come, he, for some he's going to be a, a place of safety, but for some he's going to be a place of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And then he also quotes Isaiah 28, 16, Therefore thus says the Lord, God, behold, I am the one who has laid the foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Look at this. Whoever believes will not be put to haste or to shame. God has laid Jesus as the cornerstone for your life. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, from here, verse 9 in 1 Peter 2 is really going to get into some things that are going to be challenging for you to believe about yourself. So before we even read them, the question is, what does God say about me? I'm not asking what your dad said about you, what your mom said about you, what your uncle said about you. I'm not asking about what your friends on, in your neighborhood block said about you or what your classmates said about you or what your coach or teacher said about you. This is what God says about you. Okay? You can choose to believe it by faith that this is who you actually are. This is where you can set aside and put away this false perception of identity and begin to walk in who you actually are in Christ. So verse 9 says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Whoa. Does anybody have that tattoo? If you do, that's fantastic, but is this, is this who you are? Think about it for a minute. What is it? So the idea of a chosen race here, this is not Hitler's idea of a chosen race. This is the, the idea of the father who created all people, and he describes his kingdom that when Christ returns, he will gather the nations to himself from every color of skin, every tribe, every tongue, every language, every ethnicity. So God's chosen race is beautiful. It includes every color, every size, every different level of intellect. Like, it's beautiful. And so you read this and God's saying, yes, and if you're in Christ, you're part of the family. You don't have to look like the guy sitting over there or the lady sitting over there. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. This is interesting. To be part of the priesthood in the Old Testament, you kind of had to be born into that. This is mainly reserved for the Levites. You're born into priesthood. Oh, look at that. We've been born again. 
and now the idea of the priest. Now, here's the thing. I'm not the priest in this room, okay? Just want to make that clear. I'm not your priest. Jesus is your priest, okay? But what this is saying is that you and I have been so dramatically, supernaturally cleaned by the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God that we now, all of us, are part of the priesthood. We no longer have to have a priest go into the temple for us and talk to God and then come back out and tell us what God says. We all get to go in. That's what it's saying about you. Like, that's hard to believe, isn't it, for some of us? Like, whoa, no, man, that's... No, you, if you're in Christ, like, if you're a Christian, you're saved, you're part of the priesthood. A holy nation and a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This dramatic change. When I come to Christ, put my faith in him, I'm being called out of darkness to walk in what? Light, marvelous light. It's like being born again. And in this, with this new birth, with this new life comes what? A new identity. And it's no longer what I think about myself or what the world says about me. It's about what God says about me. You can be bold and confident about that. This is who you are. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That last verse actually comes out of Hosea. Um, if you know the story of Hosea, you kind of you kind of have some context. If you don't, I encourage you. Like if you you're not quite sure where to start reading the Bible, um, first of all, if you're new to reading the Bible, get somebody to read it with you. But go back to the, the story of Hosea. It's a beautiful, powerful story of God's love for you. You got this guy Hosea who's told by God to go choose an unfaithful wife. Like, whenever you hear the word unfaithful, take it to the nth degree. And his choosing of her is this beautiful display of unmerited favor and grace. She doesn't deserve to be chosen by Hosea, but he chooses her anyway. Makes her his wife, has children with her. She was unfaithful to him again. He goes again and gets her. And the whole point of the story is to display God's love for you. Like, we're all Gomer. We're all the unfaithful wife in that story. The, the faithful husband is God. And so Peter's actually quoting from this story, and here's the part of the story, and I don't have time to explain it all, but they name their kids, they give one of them the Hebrew word that means not my people. <laughs> you think that kid didn't have some messed up perception of identity? Another one was called not, not mercy or have no mercy or has no mercy. And then what happens is over the course of the story, the names of these children are changed, reflecting this new identity we have and when we're born again. And so that's the quote here. Once you were not my people, that was the name of one of the kids. Once you were not my people, but now you are my people. You are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, that was the name of the one of the kids, but now you have a new name, a new identity. You have received mercy. We'll look at verses 11 and 12 now, and we'll land here. And again, I just want to point out, like, so what's going to happen is Peter's going to say, hey, here's who you are, and here's my instructions for you. He's going to double down on put away these things. 
Not because God's trying to be mean and take all your toys from you, but like God's loving, kind Father who's saying, hey, put these things away because they'll actually destroy what's good in your life. He says in verse 11, he reminds us, first of all, he says once again, beloved. Some of us today are struggling to even leave that one word. How does God feel about you? Answer in your head. How does God feel about you? Not me. I know you know he's proud of me. I know you know he's proud of the the band, but how does he feel about you? See how it's a faith move? Peter said, I'll tell you, God loves you. You are his beloved. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, people on a journey, and exiles, we talked about that in week one, to abstain from or put away the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. If you haven't believed me yet about the commands and the rules of God are for your good, believe it now. Your brother in Christ Peter is coming to you and he's urging you, he's begging you. He's saying, hey, put these things away. They're actually waging war on you. They're working against you. Put these things away. In verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when you speak, when they speak, excuse me, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and do what with that? Be impressed with you? No, and glorify God on the day of visitation. All of this, being beloved and pursuing a life of good deeds is aimed at God's glory. You want to bring God glory in your life today, this week? Start living, first of all, in your true identity. If you're having a hard time believing that this is true about you, remember this. What is true about your identity is rooted in the finished work of Jesus. Not how awesome you were last week. If you measure yourself against yourself, you're never going to see yourself the way God does. So think about that. All of this being God's beloved and pursuing a life of good deeds is aimed at his glory. How do you you glorify God this week? Live in your true identity, believe it, and then work at putting some things away that are actually corrupting the goodness of life. And then the people who aren't believers will see your life and your good deeds and they will glorify your Father in heaven. I want to end with a few questions um, for us to think about. First of all, I want to go back to the things that Peter told us to put away. I don't know if any of that landed on you, but let's just revisit it before we end today. He said to put away some things. And so how do the things that Peter tells you or tells us to put away, here they are, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, how do these things corrupt our relationships with other believers? Just think about that. Maybe you've experienced it, you've seen it, you've witnessed it, you've felt it, maybe you've participated in it. How have these things corrupted your relationships with other believers? Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. You can quickly go, you know what? If I put these things away, I would have better relationships, right? 
Okay, the next question is this, is how does Peter describe our new identity in Christ? He's not asking you what do you see when you look in the mirror. He's saying, I want you to see what God sees when he looks at you. How does Peter describe your new identity in Christ? And how are those descriptions different from how you typically see yourself? Like, did, did anybody in the room, raise your hand, I want to know it. Look in the mirror and go, oh my gosh, you look like a priest today. Anybody? Okay, so your perception of yourself is different from how God sees you. Anybody look in the mirror and go, man, you look like a citizen of a holy nation. Okay, so think about how the way you see yourself is different from how God sees you. And are any of, this is the last question, are any of these descriptions of your new identity in Christ, are they any of them hard for you to believe? And if so, which ones and why? I want to I encourage, I want to urge you to do something this week. I'm going to urge you to have this conversation with another believer that you trust this week. Community groups this week, we'll be discussing all this. If you're not in a community group, strongly encourage you to get into one. But like this week, I would encourage you to talk about the way you see yourself versus the way God sees you with another believer. Go have coffee, lunch, phone calls, sit around a fire, whatever it takes. Like, hey, can I just share something with you I'm wrestling with? Here's how I see myself, but here's what God says about me, and I'm struggling to believe it. I encourage you to have that conversation this week and talk through which ones and then why you're struggling to believe that. So I'm going to end today with just praying over us. We're going to sing a song together. And if there's like an, something going on in your life that you just feel like, hey, I'd love to have somebody like pray about this with me. Um, we, we have people on Sunday mornings who we call prayer partners. Um, they'll be standing over here on this side, and on this side at the front while we're singing. If you come grab one of them and say, hey, will you pray for me? The answer is yes. Just tell them what you want me to pray for. They love to pray for you today. If you're here today and you're like, I don't know that I'm born again. I don't know that I've experienced this dramatic change that you're talking about here. I kind of still feel like I'm walking in darkness and I haven't come to know Jesus this way. Like, I just want to tell you, like, we would love to talk with you and pray with you today. Myself, any of our elders, prayer partners, would love to talk with you about what does it look like to trust in Jesus and him alone for your salvation. Any other questions you have about the church? Again, come find us out in the commons. Love to talk with you. Let's pray together as the worship team comes back out. Um, Father, we thank you for your word and how, Father, we today are still counting on the same word, the same Bible, the same scripture that Peter was counting on 2,000 years ago. That this beautiful word of God, that this, this scripture that brings us to a place of living hope, like it's, it's still powerful in our lives today. It still nourishes us. So, Father, today, just praying, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, God, maybe today would be that day that they would come to you in faith and maybe pray for the first time and trust in Jesus and him alone for their salvation. Others of us here today, if we're quite honest, we're just struggling to see ourselves the way you see us. And so, Father, this is not about mustering up self-esteem or having a more positive outlook on life. This is about believing the gospel. So, God, would you lead us to faith and believing the things that you say about who we are in Christ. So Father, today we pray your Holy Spirit would move and work in this room, work in our hearts. We pray all this in Jesus' name.